Great to be with you again today. Today we're going to start a new book study. We just finished up the book of Daniel, which was a very interesting study. If you haven't yet, I would invite you to go ahead and check that one out. But today we're going to start a new book, and that is the book of Titus. Titus is one of the so-called pastoral epistles. It was written from Paul uh, to Titus. Titus was a young man who was serving on the island of Crete, and his job was to build up the churches to do evangelism and discipleship and to plant new churches and then also to appoint leaders for those churches. So this book is quite interesting because it shows us what is a leader's job in the church and how was Titus to go about this job? What specific things was he to teach to the people in the church? Uh, How was he to appoint leaders? What kind of leaders was he to appoint? How was he to deal with various problems? And how was he to uh, instruct the people in church life? What is the role of, of older men? What's the role of younger men? What's the role of older women, younger women? What is the role of even slaves? What is the role of each person in the church? And so Paul told Titus what he should teach to each of these groups of people. So whether you are a leader in ministry or whether you just want to find a good Bible-believing church or you also want to uh, take the lessons from the book of Titus so that you can become a more godly believer and a better leader in whatever area God has put you in, then I think this study will be very beneficial for you. So we're going to start off in chapter 1, and today we will study chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I'll go ahead and read it here. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior." To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. I'll stop there for now. This is the greeting of the book. And in just a moment, we'll go forward and discuss the qualities of elders that we will talk about in the next part. So as normal, uh, Paul begins his letter identifying himself. He identifies himself as Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul generally identifies himself as an apostle very early on in the letters he writes. And as such, his words carry weight and credibility. He is also a servant. And it was important for Titus, who was also a leader, to remember that leaders are servants. Jesus taught the disciples the concept of servant leadership. And that revolutionized the way that ministry was done in the church. So it's very important for anyone who is serving as a leader, whether it's a leader of a Bible study, a leader of a ministry, a Sunday school, or an entire church, to have the same concept that Paul had, that is that they are servants. So Jesus said that the first should be last, and the last should be first. So a leader is not someone who bosses others around, but rather is someone who serves and sets an example for the flock. And so Paul himself did that, and he would also expect Titus to do the same thing. And he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So here, Paul shares very simply why he did what he did. His service was to build up the faith. 
and the knowledge of believers. He says that he is an apostle. Why? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. So he was an apostle not for the money that he could get, not for the fame or the popularity or the power. He was an apostle and a servant for the sake of building up the faith of the elect, of the faithful, of the saints, of God's children. So he wasn't motivated by some things that people in the world would be motivated by. His motivation was pure. He simply wanted believers to grow. That's why he did the work that he did. And that's very important for us to remember in every aspect of Christian service that we should be serving others for the sake of building them up in Christ, not for what we can get. And in verse 2, he says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So the end goal of Paul's calling was that those he ministered to would receive eternal life. To put in it to put it in a simple way, Paul knew that he was going to heaven to be with the Lord one day and he wanted as many as possible to go with him. This is a great calling. It's a great goal to work so that more people can hear the good news which can lead them to eternal life. And then he talks about this promise which was promised before the ages began. I'm not 100% sure what promise he's referring to. It may be the one made to Adam and Eve in the garden that their descendant would crush the serpent's head. That is the first promise uh, or the allusion to the coming Savior recorded in Scripture. So this is really the entire point of Scripture is that the Old Testament tells people you have sin and you need someone to come and save you from your sin. And therefore it promises the Messiah, that is the Savior, will come. And the, the New Testament says that is Jesus. He is the Messiah. He's the one who can save you from your sins. That is the basically the entire point of the Bible in a nutshell. And in verse 3, he says, At the proper time, this is manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now, I want to take just a moment to comment on this word entrusted because it's a very important one. Paul viewed his preaching ministry as a calling that God had entrusted to him. This word entrusted shows that this did not belong to Paul. He was a caretaker. His preaching was through the Lord and it was for the Lord, not for himself. So God had given him his gift. God had given him his calling. God had given him this mission, this task. And his responsibility was to faithfully carry it out to the best of his ability. And it wasn't given to himself for himself. It was not for Paul's reputation or anything else it was for the Lord and for his glory. Now, most things that are entrusted to the cares of others have great value. If I am going on a trip and I want someone to babysit my children, I might entrust my children to them. Or perhaps you entrust some important papers or a business to someone else for a period of time. Entrusting contains the word trust, which shows that trust is placed in the person who is receiving these valuable things. And that person should act in a trustworthy manner. So let's take an application for that for ourselves. What has God entrusted to you? Perhaps he has given you a mission or a calling like he gave to Paul. Perhaps he has entrusted children to you. Or perhaps he has put students 
under your care or employees under your care or some aspect of ministry within your church or community. He's put these things into your care and you are to use them, uh, you are to use the gifts and the resources he has given you for building this up and for using that for God's glory. Your children, for example, you are to raise them up to know the Lord and to serve him and to be his instruments in this world. So how does understanding that you have been entrusted with a task affect your attitude toward that task? If you would like to take a moment, you're welcome to pause the video and share in the comment section what God has entrusted to you and what that word entrust means to you as far as how you are to carry out this responsibility. For Paul, he was entrusted with this mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we will see that Titus was entrusted with the mission to appoint elders in the churches in Crete. In verse 4, we see who this letter was written to. He says, To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Titus was a frequent travel companion of Paul. He served on the team of disciple makers and church planters that Paul led. Now, Paul viewed Timothy as his true child in a common faith. Most likely, Paul was single. However, he had many spiritual children with whom he shared a close relationship. This reminds us of a promise in Matthew 19, 49, but, oh, sorry, 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So those who give up a having a family or other worldly things for the sake of serving after God. And sorry, I don't mean to say that having a family is worldly, but someone who gives up anything in this world for the sake of serving God will be rewarded fully. And so Paul gave up having a family for the sake of doing ministry, but yet he gained a lot as well, and he gained many uh, spiritual children around the world. So Titus is not just a tool, is not some kind of a tool that Paul is using. Uh, he cares deeply about him. And so this is a reminder that team is more powerful than an individual. Paul's ministry was multiplied over many regions because he trained up like-minded disciples and these disciples reproduced. So ministry is about relationship. You could have a very knowledgeable missionary who lacks love and lacks care for others on a personal level. And that missionary is not likely to be very successful. Love is the distinguishing mark of believers. And it is by our love that others will know that we are Jesus' disciples. And we can see that in John 13, 35. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Paul modeled this discipleship with Titus. He loved Titus and he treated Titus as a spiritual son. And then Titus went and took that same kind of loving relationship into the church where he did ministry. 
So for us, that reminds us, God doesn't call us to be a lone ranger in his service. We're to be part of a team that loves and cares for one another and then also serves together. So are you part of a team? Titus and Paul were part of a team and each one had their role and fulfilled it in God's service. And for us, we could be more effective when we are part of a team and serving with others. And when we reach out, when we are serving God in the church, do we care for others like that, that we could say things like, he is my true child? Do we see that kind of loving care in how we treat others in the church? So this is the greeting. The letter is from Paul, an apostle, to Timothy. Paul's goal is to Uh, fulfill the mission which he's been given by God, which he's been entrusted with by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Titus is on his team. He's a young man serving and he is helping Paul with this mission as they are part of the same team and he is working specifically, we will see, in Crete. Okay, now we will continue with the key part in our passage today, which is about the qualifications for elders. And we'll see that in Titus 1, 5 through 8. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So here we see that Titus' mission was to appoint elders in every town in Crete. It says, Paul says, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. So Titus's mission was to appoint elders. At that time, there was generally one church in one city. Hence, there was an Ephesian church, a Colossian church, a Philippian church. Every single church needed elders. So this statement shows us the importance of biblical eldership in a church. It wasn't just an optional thing or an advisable thing. It was necessary for a healthy and foundation functional church. Nowhere in the New Testament do we actually see any other model endorsed for church authority. The biblical model is eldership. And so here it talks about an elder, that is an office within the church. The words overseer, elder, and shepherd in the New Testament refer to the same office. And it's a position of leadership and oversight over a local church body. Now the New Testament clearly lays out the method by which the local church is to be governed. And that is by a team, a plurality of elders. The idea of a single head or this dominant uh, head pastor who has all the authority in himself is not taught in the Bible. And neither is the concept of church voting that's totally foreign to the New Testament. God's design for the church is clearly taught in 1 Timothy 3, which is another passage like this one, which details the qualifications for church elders. And also other New Testament passages Uh, discuss eldership and deacons who function as servant leaders in the church. Now, the elders shepherd the body and look after spiritual needs. 
and the deacons assist by helping with physical needs such as facilities, caring for the poor, and finances. For the passage where deacons were first appointed, you can check out Acts chapter 7. Now, the concept of eldership was seen all the way back in the time of the Exodus, when Jethro told Moses he could not do all the work alone. So there are many reasons that God established a team of elders as the biblical model for church leadership. So here are just a few of the benefits that I can think of. I'm sure you can think of many more. Uh, And when you do, please do write them in the comment section below. First of all, elders, uh, a team of elders can share the load. Leading a church is mentally, spiritually, and physically taxing. There's a lot of work to do. So when there is a team to share the work, there's less likelihood of burnout. When one person is sick or tired, then others can cover for them. And so it brings more energy uh, and more ability to accomplish things into the group. And they can share the load together. So as a team, they can accomplish more. Also, weaknesses and blind spots are minimized. No one knows everything. No one has all the answers. No one is right all the time, though I wish I was. When one person has all the authority, his personal weaknesses and blind spots can cause serious issues for the church. No matter how good or righteous a leader is, no matter how solid their theology normally is, it is possible for such a person to go astray on a specific issue or in a specific situation. And if he, for example, if someone is is also blunt, there's no one to temper his frankness. If he's a visionary and doesn't think about practicalities, there's no one there to be a voice of reason. Or if he goes off the track, there's no one there who can help cover over those blind spots and fill in the gaps of what he is missing. This is why Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that two is better than one. Also, having a team of elders provides certain checks and balances. Having a team provides accountability. When one steps off the path, the other elders can correct and restore him before the whole church is involved and harmed. Having a team of elders does actually slow things down, though, uh, and that's means that more time is required to make decisions. This can actually be a positive thing because consensus and agreement need to be reached before decisions are made. That allows more time, more time for discussion, prayer, input, listening. Things happen more slowly, but it also minimizes impulsiveness and mistakes. Having a team also provides some protection from complaints. When one person makes the decision on his own, he opens himself up to all kinds of complaints. People may blame him for making the wrong decision and say, why is your opinion more important than mine? When a team makes a decision together, there is strength in numbers. Instead of, I have decided that, or I think that, or it's my decision that, it becomes we have decided, we have prayed about, we have talked about, we have agreed that what? The team has agreed together. And so there's certain protection in that team when you know there's a godly group of men who come together and discuss an issue and pray about it and together reach the same decision after careful thought that 
they're also going to be more likely to stick to that decision, even if there's some loan descent here and there. So it provides some protection from complaints. Also, it brings in more perspectives and more wisdom, what one person doesn't see than another person can. It's also a good model for the body, for the unity of the body. When elders with different backgrounds and sometimes different opinions cooperate, it's an object lesson for the whole congregation. They're encouraged that they can work together too. And the corollary to that is actually when elders do not work together and divide over small issues, then it brings division into the body and it discourages unity in people working together. Uh, in a fellowship I was part of, the team of elders, we taught through the book of Revelation together. Now, we actually had very, very different views on how to interpret the book of Revelation. And at the beginning, we thought this is, you know, nearly impossible. How can we teach through this book when each one of us has a different view, either pre-mill or uh, mid-trib, post, uh, pre-trib and post-trib, and then another was amill, amillennial view? How can we teach through this together when we have such different views? And we realized that that actually brought more unity because as we preached through we needed to humble ourselves and realize that our views may not be right all the time and so we would say okay this is uh, view a b c and this is the reasons for each one i think that a is right because of this but i still love the other guys i still love my brothers even though they have a different view than me and so week after week when people saw that unity modeled it was encouraging to the fellowship so unity doesn't necessarily mean agreement on every doctrinal point or interpretation, but it is agreement on the basics and standing firm on the foundation of, of Christ and focusing on Christ. So this is a model for the body that we can work together in spite of some surface disagreements. All right, so let's see the actual qualifications for elders. Now, these qualifications are very, very important. What this means is you don't just take anyone and promote them to being an elder. In the qualification, there's no, nothing in the qualifications about, uh, okay, if you're, if you're the longest standing member of your church, then you're auto uh, inserted as an elder or this kind of thing. It's not about tenure. It's about... Christian character. And that is very, very important to remember. So if a church carefully follows this list, it is very, very likely that the person they appoint will truly help the church and help build up the church. And it's very, very likely that this church will be Bible-believing and will be a very fruitful place for people to go and attend and grow. On the other hand, when this list is rejected and certain worldly, um, worldly qualifications are put in instead of these, then the church is going to go off in the wrong direction. These things are not necessarily things which the world um, values. You don't see in here uh, like being a dynamic speaker. Uh, or being able to be, you know, super, super uh, charismatic and having this, you know, amazing, like, uh, dynamic personality or these kinds of things which some churches may look for in their pastor. What these qualities show is that a person needs to be solid, mature, grounded in 
God's word. So let's go through these characteristics. The first one in verse 6 is that he should be above reproach. Uh, This is a general character quality that kind of covers any that Paul doesn't mention specifically. Now, it does not mean that an elder must be perfect. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any. Uh, No one can attain to that. It does mean that an elder should have a good reputation. Where is the line, though, for being above reproach? Probably the best answer is you will know it when you see it. Many things not on this list we will see below would disqualify a person under this principle. Embezzling money, not above reproach. Abusing one's wife, not above reproach. Having a dirty mouth, not above reproach. On the other hand, if people have good comments about the candidate and agree that he's a godly person, then it would look like he is above reproach. So, Reproach means someone can come in and make some negative accusations, some valid, credible accusations against the person. So this is kind of like an umbrella which covers over all of the others and any Paul does not mention here. So this list is not an exhaustive one we're going to look at. Paul says that this person should be the husband of one wife. Now, literally, this means a one-woman man. There's actually two qualifications here. One is implied and the other is stated. The implied qualification is that an elder should be male. When you read through 1 Timothy, you see the same thing. It talks about the husband of one wife uh, and it talks about he, 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 he over and over. It says that it uses the pronoun he. So this is God's standard. It is what God has put into scripture. So if anyone has an issue with that, they should take it up with him. So God has set certain roles in the leadership of the church for certain reasons. So in this uh, in this lesson today, we don't have enough time to get into that, but we can see clearly that God has chosen for men to be the leaders of the church. Now, the second qualification is that the man must be faithful to his spouse. Most Bible scholars agree that this does not necessarily mean the elder must be married. Uh, You see, the next qualification is his children are believers. Does that mean if he doesn't yet have children or he had a child and his child died that he cannot be an elder? I don't think so. But if it means that he should be a pure, uh, faithful individual. If he's married, he should be faithful to his wife. He should be faithful to her. Um, He shouldn't have wandering eyes. Um, He shouldn't obviously be engaging in adultery. Uh, This would also prohibit a divorced and remarried man from serving in this office. It would also prohibit a man who is living in adultery or a man who practices polygamy and so on. Now, in the modern age, the church is often very lenient on these standards. And as a result, actually, the holy sanctity of marriage is not being respected We can see in the church, divorce and remarriage are rampant. And allowing men who engage in this to serve as leaders only reinforces the problem while giving a bad model for the congregation. In the book of Ezra, the leaders went outside of the nation of Israel to get married to pagan women. And when they did that, then their followers also did the same because they said, my leader's doing it, I can do it. Too. And that's one reason why God has such high requirements for a leader 
in the churches so that they will give a good model to the flock, something to aim for in their own life. Now, please note that this list is not the same as a list of qualifications for having salvation because there are no qualifications for having salvation except that one believes in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. This is God's grace. Salvation is God's grace. Anyone, no matter how um, unfaithful they've been in their marriage in the past or how many times they've committed adultery, they can come to Jesus as Jesus told the adulterous woman. He said, I don't condemn you. Go your way. Sin no more. So this isn't about someone coming to Christ. God forgives. No matter what you've done in the past, God forgives. And his grace is more than enough to cover that. This is about appointing church leaders who will be a good model for the congregation. All right, going forward, it says that his children are believers. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, a similar requirement uh, is also there. Let's take a look at that one. Mm. It is in 1 Timothy 3. Verse 4, it says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So a very interesting uh, cross-reference for this, that he must have children who are believers. Jesus said in Luke 16.10, if you're faithful in the little things, you'll be faithful in the large ones. So managing one's house is, of course, not a little thing, but it is littler or smaller than managing a church. If a man is faithful in managing his own household well, it's a good sign that he'll be a good shepherd in the church. If he has family devotions, if he uh, teaches his children to be respectful and kind, and he teaches children uh, not to be selfish, but to share, and not to be violent, but to apologize and ask forgiveness if they do wrong things to others. And if his children are generally well-behaved and uh, he expects them to follow the standards in the Bible, such as obeying parents and uh, treating others as you want yourself to be treated and so on. If a father is doing that at home, then this is a very good sign that he would do similarly at church. On the other hand, if his children are out of control, then he should not be entrusted with taking care of spiritual children. You can get a lot of insight into a person and how he treats his family. Is he harsh with his wife? Does he show her love and respect? Is he patient with his children? Does he yell at them in public? Does he spoil them? Does he allow them to do wrong without any consequences? Do his children like him or are they afraid of him? All of these things can show you what kind of a person this is. No one knows a man better than his family. And actually, it's a good idea when interviewing a candidate for elder to talk to his wife and to talk to his children if possible. Some ministers have neglected their families for the sake of serving the church. They're simply too busy doing ministry. And so they don't have enough time to minister to their own families. This passage is clear that this is wrong. The family is first. John Stott says, the married pastor is called to leadership in two families, his and God's. And the former is to be training ground of the latter. 
So in simple terms, we can see that an elder should manage his household well. But does it mean, does this requirement here mean that his children must be a believer? What about a man who has a baby and the baby is not a believer yet? Or what about a man who has a grown-up child who has become a prodigal? When kids are living with their parents, their behavior to some extent is the parent's responsibility. As a teacher, I sometimes see young children who routinely hit, scratch, push, or bite other children. Their parents are actually responsible for that behavior because they should have trained them better than that. Wise parents will deal with their children so that this doesn't happen as a habit. Of course, all children are sinners and the best parents cannot prevent that happening sometimes. But it's possible that a parent can pray for, teach, set an example for, and do everything else in their power to raise up their child to know God. And when the child grows up, he may still reject God and rebel against him. Does that disqualify a man from being an elder if his children or a child doesn't believe in Jesus? Now, there are two general views. The first is the most straightforward, and that is to simply apply the the text that says his children are believers. And so you could say, well, God just has a very high standard here. And if his children are believers, then this is a good sign that he did something right. And so, yeah, we need to take it as a very, very high standard. This would be a very high bar for a person to be qualified for eldership, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. And being cautious in interpreting this phrase the most conservatively we can does have some merit. The second view is that the word for believer here is means faithful, and it's the Greek word pistos. Your Bible's footnotes probably include this as a possible translation. So if we look at the whole verse, it says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So this phrase, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, is a reference to the children. The children are not open to this charge. That is that the children are generally pistos. They are faithful. They're not outwardly rebellious or wild, which would be a bad testimony for the church and for the father, who would be disqualified from biblical eldership if the children were open to charges of debauchery and insubordination and rebelliousness. This then would fit closely with the instruction in 1 Timothy 3, 4, he must manage his own household well. Now, it would seem odd if Paul gave a seemingly looser instruction to Timothy, that is, he must manage his household well, and then a higher one to Titus, that is, his child must be a believer. Holding them to a higher standard seems unlikely also because Titus was choosing elders for churches that were newer and less mature. So understanding this believer to be pistos would mean that the two views are consistent. The father is responsible for his children's external behavior. He can control or at least he can strongly influence their external behavior. Whereas a child's salvation is always outside of the parent's control and is always their own responsibility. So each of the other biblical qualifications for eldership is related to his personal responsibility. There's nothing in there that a godly believer would not be able to do 
uh, on his own or that was outside of his own influence. And it would fit then that this one too is about his responsibility toward his children. Even the best shepherds could have an unbeliever in their church or in their family. So my own view is that a man is not unqualified as an elder purely because a grown-up child is not walking with God or a young child has not yet come to faith. And it would be odd for sure if someone has, you know, uh, children who are 8 and 10 and they're believers and they have a new baby and okay, your, your child's not a believer yet, so now you're not elder until he grows up and becomes a believer. This would be very, very awkward uh, way of interpreting this in the church. So um, there are two views on that. Uh, please, you're welcome to do more research. Please share your thoughts below if you have a different idea. I'd be very, very happy to, to hear that. Again, my understanding of this passage is that a man must be managing his household well in order to be an elder. Okay, moving forward in verse 7, it says, An overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. There's that same term again, above reproach. So it says that an overseer is God's steward. An overseer is a person who supervises. The thing that he supervises does not belong to him. This verse is a reminder that an elder is, we can say, an under-shepherd. His calling is to watch over to protect and to build up what belongs to God. The church's head is Jesus. It is his authority that uh, an elder is under and that the whole church is under. The church belongs to him and it is for him. It's through him and for him. So an overseer must be careful not to fall into the trap of thinking that the people in the church are his, are his. This is something I've seen before where someone has a Bible study and someone leaves this Bible study and joins another group and the leader gets quite upset saying you're not loyal to me um, or you know I spent so much time teaching you how could you do this how could you leave and this kind of mentality is very very unhealthy and the person is missing the fact that these are sheep and these are sheep which belong to Jesus not to ourself so this could be a sign of possessiveness if a leader gets upset when someone leaves his church or his fellowship or if a pastor demands personal loyalty or thinks that the people he serves owe him something. These could be signs. Um, so that wouldn't, be, that wouldn't be right. We should realize that we are a steward and we are just a caretaker for the Lord. Uh, I love the Lord of the Rings series by J.R. Tolkien. And in this series, there is a kingdom called Gondor, and a line of stewards rules over this kingdom. The kings are out of the picture for a while, and so the stewards are doing the day-to-day -day running of the kingdom. They're supposed to be protecting the kingdom for when the true kingdom returned. That is Aragorn in the story. However, their thinking at some point changed and they wanted to remain in control. So Denethor in the story was the last steward and he would not make way for the return of the king. So Gandalf tells him, you know, it's not up to you to deny the return of the king. You are a steward, okay? You are not on that throne. You have to give that away. You have to make way for the real king. Now, some pastors may sometimes be a little bit like Denethor. Instead of serving the king, they might start to serve themselves. And things begin to revolve around them instead of around 
Christ. We need to be very, very careful that we are not like that. A steward is charged with protecting and caring for that which belongs to another. He is serving someone else. So an elder should always remember that they are stewards and they watch over Christ's sheep for him. Not as lords, but as servants. Now you might think you are not an elder, so how does this apply to you? But actually all of scripture applies to us. And even if you're not an elder, you, I believe, are a steward of something. What has God put under your care? What is your role as a steward in this area? As a parent, you are entrusted with your children to raise them up to serve the Lord. As a teacher, you are entrusted to give a good education to your students. If you own a home, you are a steward of this home and you should use it uh, with hospitality to serve the Lord. If you are an owner of a car, you are a steward of that car and you should use it to serve God. Maybe you own little but the money that you have should be used in a wise manner that pleases God. So whatever God has put under your care, you are a steward of that and you're to oversee that for the sake of serving the Lord. So let's go forward. Uh, more qualifications. It says he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Um, and the NASB says not self-willed. So as an, as an elder, you are in a way responsible for others. You cannot be selfish or put yourself over others. Uh, pride says, I'm important. I'm an elder. Listen to me. Humility says, how can I serve you? And as there is a plurality of elders, means you cannot make all the decisions on your own. It's important to be a team player and cooperate in harmony with the other elders for the whole church that doesn't mean being weak or compromising. Elders must take a stand for what is right. But it's very important to be humble, to listen to everyone, listen to counsel, listen to suggestions, listen to advice. And not quick-tempered. Being an elder can be very difficult. And there are certain things that might make an elder lose his temper. Uh, some people might go to church and take and not give. Others might complain, uh, it's too hot, it's too cold, uh, it's too loud, uh, the, the, the worship is not lively enough, the preaching style is too this or that, the Sunday school is too this or that, and the list might go on and on. Now, if an elder has a quick temper he will, and is prideful, he will often lose it and be a bad testimony. And he might say to someone, fine, you don't like the way we do it, how about you? You don't do anything. From now on, do it your way. I quit, I'm done. Okay, well, that was a, a quick, a quick, uh, quick reign as elder. Now, an elder needs to be long-suffering and patient. An elder with a short fuse is a recipe for disaster. The Bible says, "Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks." So, if you observe a man who has a quick temper, for example, on the basketball court or at his home, uh, or when he's driving on the highway then that same quick temper will show itself in church. Okay, moving forward, it says that he should not be a drunkard. Um, some translations say addicted to wine. Uh, Ephesians 5.18 gives the standard for that. It says... And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So, by extension, an elder should not be addicted to any sins, which would mean he is uh, then not above reproach. 
As believers, we should all seek to live a sin-free life, free of addictions left from our old self. So it's not a sin to drink, it is a sin to get drunk, and a drunkard should not be chosen as an elder. And then it says that he should not be violent. The NASB says pugnacious, and this means literally ready to fight. Okay, It's quite similar to the one about not being quick-tempered. Elders need to be peacemakers in a very real sense, making peace between people and God and also making peace between brothers and sisters in the church when they have conflicts and making peace by sharing the gospel and bringing people into a right relationship with God. And so an elder needs to encourage tolerance over non-foundational issues. Not being tolerant of sin, but being tolerant of different personalities and disagreement over non-foundational issues. So an elder should not be someone who's always ready to fight. Uh, there are some things which are worth fighting or arguing about, but those should be saved for the very important things and would be a last resort. Also, an elder should not be greedy for gain. Uh, similar thing is mentioned in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many fangs. Just as with all believers, elders can have only one master, not two, not both God and money. Unfortunately, in the history of the church, all kinds of problems and bad testimonies have been created by pastors or church leaders who got their position because of a love for money rather than a love for God. And in the Middle Ages, many pastors became pastors because it was a stable and well-paid profession, not really because they sought to spread God's word. These leaders have the wrong goals and the wrong motivations. A person working for money will not have the same love and care for the flock, which Jesus also mentioned that in John 10, 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. If someone is just doing this as a job, when the trouble comes, when the work gets harder, when the trials come, he just leaves because it's not worth it anymore. So a church should try to be very careful that the leaders are not uh, greedy or exploiting their position for material gain. And churches need to keep their finances above board and public information and do a thorough investigation about potential leaders before asking them to take their positions. Okay, so, so far through verse 7, we've seen mostly uh, negative qualifications. That is, you should not be this and you should not be that. Um, but there are also positive qualifications of what an elder should be. Verse 8 says he should be hospitable. Elders will have many opportunities to show hospitality. They can open their homes to the people of the church and those in need, invite newcomers for meals, and so on. And by opening their home, they can allow people to come in and see what a godly family should function like. Uh, first, Peter 4, 8, and 9 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Also, an elder should be a lover of what is good. This requirement is simple to understand, but really important. It shows a certain passion. It's not just doing what is good. 
It's not just having the right actions or habits, but it is enjoying doing what is good. It is loving doing what is good. Doing them happily for the sake of doing right rather than from any selfish motivations. He's also to be self-controlled or sensible. An elder should have common sense. Uh, he should be well-grounded. He should be able to look at things logically and analytically. He should be able to um, set aside his emotions to think over issues rather than just being ruled by his emotions. He will handle many requests and petitions. He needs to be able to practice discernment and decision-making. And an elder is to be upright, okay? So he is to be just and he is to be righteous. He is to be holy. Uh, that is, he is to live in above reproach uh, lifestyle full of integrity and seek to seek to be... Uh, faithful to all the commands that Jesus Christ has given. Uh, and then it says also he is to be disciplined. So he is to have a disciplined lifestyle. Um, discipline could be seen in a lot of ways. Uh, how he lives his life. Is it structured? Uh, does he exercise well? Does he eat well? Or does he overindulge himself in eating? Or does he overindulge himself in other areas? Is he disciplined? And if he's disciplined physically in how he eats and how he maintains his life in his home, then he'll also very likely be disciplined spiritually and in how he leads the church. Okay, so these are the qualifications we will look at today. And next time we will go forward from verse 9, which talks about a couple more qualifications for elders. So again, you might be thinking as you go through this, well, I'm not an elder. How does this apply to me? So I'll just leave you with a couple things. Number one, look for a church with elders like this. When you have leaders who are like this list and who, when they're chosen because of this list and not for some other things, um, then that church is very, very likely to be a good church and is very, very likely to be a place where you can grow spiritually. So look for a church with leaders like this. And second, seek to be like this yourself. Even if you will never be an elder in the future, this is what a godly believer should live like and should do. So this is a good target. This is a good aim, a good standard for all of us. So think over this list that we've talked about today, uh, hospitality and self-control and humility and managing your household well and being a steward, um, being a lover of good, being wholly disciplined. Think over all of the things we've talked about and think about which one you need to grow in in your own walk with Jesus and pray and ask him to help you to grow and help you to be more Christ-like. I hope this lesson on Titus 1, 1 through 8 was encouraging and was helpful for you. Join us next time and we'll continue through the second half of this chapter. God bless and see you then. To see our entire library of over 800 Bible studies, please visit our website at www.studyandobey.com.